people need ordering principles. Twelve rules. Hello, welcome to Twelve Rules for What. My name is Sam, and I'm Alex, and we're recording today an episode about the base. So it's early February, 2020. Uh, new year, new us. Is this the first podcast of the year? It is, probably. Yeah, yeah that we've done is. together. So we're talking about the base. There's been quite a lot of um, discussion of the base recently. Um, they're a group that turned up in July 2018, so they were founded quite a long time ago um, by the founders of neo-Nazi groups. And they are basically a what's called a kind of accelerationist group in um, largely in America, although there are some kind of international links that we'll go into throughout the episode. Um, How come they came to prominence um, now? So, they, yeah, they, they, they were started perhaps, um, I guess that's now 20 months ago. So they have come to prominence recently because three people were arrested. Um, three people in Georgia, all people who were apparently, allegedly, uh, the case is ongoing, conspiring to kill two people who they thought were members of Antifa in America. And it's kind of significant and it's kind of underreported in lots of the uh, coverage of this that they were going off a list that was posted online um, by someone from uh, Occidental Descent, uh, which is a, another kind of like a white nationalist project in America. And so they were um, conspiring to commit murder, which would be the first murders the group has committed. And then they were they were stopped um, in advance of that. Uh, I think possibly, well, I'm not quite sure about this, possibly because there was a, an undercover anti-fascist activist within the group. Certainly there was an undercover, and I'm just not sure if they're related. Yeah, it seems at one point there was an undercover FBI agent, another point that another uh, undercover person leaked a lot of the logs to the Guardian. There are, yeah, there's, there's also an accusation which is, I think, not entirely unfounded that maybe the entire organisation is a honeypot. Uh, but we'll we'll get into that as we kind of go through it. Okay, big claims. Yeah, it's so, a huge claim. I mean, but it, but it wouldn't actually be entirely out of keeping with the the U.S. states involvement with anti uh, with uh, far right movements, uh, or indeed the British state or the French state or any of the uh, countries that participated in the uh, Stay Behind network. So the group was founded in uh, summer of two thousand eighteen, and um, I guess one of the first things to talk about is the name. Um, it's called the base, which is what what is that modelled on? The base is Al Qaeda. Um, which is a, uh, you, you've heard of Al Qaeda. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so they're, they're directly transplanting Al Qaeda, which means the base, into English. Well, okay, they deny this, uh, and it's quite significant they deny this, because one thing that we've seen, and um, over the last kind of, I guess, five years of extremification, I think it's important to distinguish between the process by which groups become more extreme and individuals become radicalized. I just think that's kind of useful terminological clarification. So in these kind of five years of extremification that we've had, there's been an increased interest in what's called white jihad, which is the idea that um, essentially jihadis, or Salafist jihadis rather, have essentially the right model of how to do war, low-scale, um, low-intensity insurgent warfare. And, the, uh, and there's increased kind of respect on the extreme right, uh, what's also called the kind of accelerationist or like black-pilled um, kind of neo-Nazi groups, there's increasing respect amongst those groups for Salafist jihadism as a model. 
in part because it's um was very effective in say Iraq in the aftermath of the occupation uh, by the um, you know, coalition forces. It was very uh, effective at uh, jihadism. That is was very effective at um, causing huge social rifts between the uh, Sunni and Shia communities. And this tactic of attempting to produce these rifts in societies is, in some sense, what these groups, the accelerationist groups, so the basis, the one we're talking about now, but there were before that, it was Atomoffen. There's also Foyokli division. Um, there was kind of less importantly Solomonkli division. National action. There were national action. What these groups are aiming at is basically the same kind of model as Salafist jihadism was aiming at in producing social tensions, causing forms of war. The tensions that these groups are interested in are mostly racial tensions, or what they conceive as racial tensions, which is an idea that goes back in uh, discourse around uh, on the far right from you know, a long, long, long time. One of the most kind of famous, I guess, examples is Charles Manson's idea of helter-skelter, which is basically kind of escalating uh, war between, uh, on the one hand, white people, on the other hand, black people. And so the kind of tactics of these groups is not aimed at movement building. It's not aimed at attempting to kind of convince people directly. What it's aimed at is attempts to produce escalating series of violence um, and hoping that in that violence, in that kind of chaos that comes about through their, what they imagine to be a kind of race war, in that violence, there will be the possibility of forming a new, essentially white ethnic state. So, but that, that formation of the white ethnic state is very much hugely in the future a lot, but and it's kind of behind a um a period of enormous destructive violence and so it's, it's it's unclear i think in as you go further over to the right whether or not these groups are actually aiming at something like real social transformation indirectly or they're just aiming at the violence they think will get there and they're only interested in the violence per se the thing i wanted to say about the relationship between jihadism and um the basis that actually we find, at least I found, comparatively less white jihad discourse amongst people of the base than there was in Atomwaffen, mm. which came before them. That's quite surprising. Yeah, I believe the, the leader, Rinaldo Natsura, was talking about like a 20-year project of, of escalating tensions. Uh, so obviously the base has been on the radar of like, I guess, specialist researchers and anti-fascists for a long time. Um, well, since their inception, I guess. Um, but they've only recently, recently broken into the mainstream. Um, it's Guardian article, these, are, these like coordinated arrests by the FBI, three people arrested in Georgia, or on this conspiracy to murder plot, some more people, uh, members of the group arrested on their way to uh, a gun rights rally in Virginia. Um, I think it's really important to like discuss what the group was actually doing and what it was planning to do. Um, so I think it, you can we can kind of distinguish the base from other um, other people and individuals within like the kind of black pill Nazi um, tradition uh, in that they rejected this like lone wolf kind of decentralized thing. They were very much were into meeting up, having a kind of some kind of organization structure, which does make them distinct from other kind of mass shooters and committers of violence. Yeah, we've talked about um, stochastic terrorism before as a kind of paradigm on the far right. Uh, the reason why stochastic terrorism is kind of useful is that it, uh, which basically means that there is kind of no coordination and the um, terrorist activities or propagandizing works through attempts to raise the general temperature of society. That's how you can kind of think about it. So that you get some people who are kind of very, very, very um, 
aggressive, will, of their own doing, will go out and start shooting people. Um, but there's no need for a kind of centralised organisation. The base, as you say, is kind of a departure from that. You might think about this as in terms also of jihadism or Salafist jihadism, um, which is that there, that the base, much like its namesake, Al-Qaeda, actually has a kind of quite de- determined organisational structure in comparison to the kind of sporadic violence that we saw um, in Europe uh, and over kind of the period 2016 to um, 2019, which was uh, lone wolf, as far as we can, you know, mostly lone wolf ISIS attacks, with some exceptions, right? So the Paris attacks were coordinated, uh, but other ones were mostly quite like, disparate. And so there is uh, perhaps a kind of a way in which the far right is going back from this atomized form of organization back towards the base. The base is actually quite interesting as an organizational structure because it absorbed several other groups. Um, it was a it was a kind of coalitional structure, um, and it was actually quite open, uh, kind of pluralistic, uh, which is kind of a silly thing to say, but it was quite open in that it allowed people who are Christians and also people who are pagans to join, which is in some sense the major distinction on the the um, kind of white supremacist um, uh, and neo-Nazi front. The question of whether or not uh, Christianity as the homogenizing um, religion of kind of a imagined Christendom or imagined Europe. Uh, whether or not it is excessively kind of tainted in their eyes with um, you know, Jewish influence and therefore whether or not the, the paganism is actually the right way forward. And so the base, by being open to both Christians and also to pagans, was actually quite unique um, amongst these groups. So they also, um, some of the things we know they did do was vandalising a synagogue. So this guy, Richard Tobin, who ordered these vandalisation of synagogues in what he called Operation Kristallnacht, um, and then subsequently uh, knocked on those people he ordered to do it. Um, so there's that kind of campaign, the the basis logo was put up on the walls of the synagogue. Um, obviously Operation Kristallnacht is a extremely like kind of loaded thing to say um, and, and points to like a kind of a wider campaign uh, or aspirations towards a wider campaign. They also organised these kind of camps in the woods or in the countryside um, which um, is, a, is, a, is a thing we've seen often, often do before. We've seen National Action kind of organise these training camps and even like, not in the same like far-right tradition, but GI have organised these like away, away day, weekend weeks uh, where they train together and have these kind of intense kind of experiences together. Yeah, that's GI is generation density. Yes. There is also this kind of idea of phys- putting up uh, stickers, physical kind of propagandising and stuff, particularly targeted uh, against certain people, so I guess maybe more kind of harassment campaigns rather than speaking to like wider communities or wider populations. Um, and obviously, we can see we've just got so many examples of like the pa- in the past in the in the 2010s of um, people so easily tipping over into their own violence, their own terror violence, or um, or like the group morphing very quickly into something that is plotting these things. We, we've seen, seen this with National Action, who went from like an edgy meme group and, you know, ironic old Nazis, I guess, um, to, you know, plotting quite major violence and and preaching extreme, you know, kind of anti-Semitic things quite openly. Um, not that they weren't doing that before, but they were, you know, these big like, kind of offensive marches that were designed to provoke, designed to intimidate. Um, the, another unique thing, I think, which I think you've looked into more is the this kind of 
insistence on like physical meetups and um, kind of face-to-face verification, which is an interesting thing to do for like a, a group yes. flirting with the edges of legality, to so, say the least. This is when I um, when I saw the court documents um, uh, for the arrest of these people in Georgia who were planning this, um, or allegedly planning conspiracy to murder. Um, when I saw the uh, documents, and it was noted that the the base's leader, um, a guy called Ronaldo Nazaro, had um, who goes by the uh, pseudonym Norman Spear or possibly uh, Roman Wolf, depending on. Uh, what day of the week, um, had encouraged the members of the base not only to meet up, but to take pictures of themselves meeting up with other members of the base and then post those pictures onto the base Discord. I thought this is like obviously uh, a honeypot, and this is this is just completely transparently a way of um, getting large numbers of uh, impressionable kind of. You know, neo Nazis who would be neo Nazis to meet up and uh, incriminate themselves by doing so. This seems completely uh, obvious. It turns out that um, Nazaro has a history. Um, he was introduced uh, in a collection of podcasts that he went on in 2017, 2019, introduced by those podcast hosts as a former CIA. Agents. What? Come on. Yes. No, I'm serious. It's absolutely crazy. It's absolutely crazy. He was introduced as a, as a former CIA agent, and he was um, he claims to be a veteran of both the Afghanistan and the Iraq wars. Um, he has no clear source of income. He advertises his services, or did until August 2019, a couple of months, well, a month after the base was founded. Sorry, a month and a year after the base was founded. He advertised his services as an intelligence specialist. Um, he has the group he's founded called Omega Solutions International, uh, which you can kind of translate, I guess, um, as like Final Solutions International, has a cage code. And a cage code is the thing that you would require if you were going to bid for a federal contract. So the possibility that he's a contractor for the US government or was attempting to become a contractor for the US government and has, has set up this base as a honeypot for the US government is not entirely out of the question. So you mentioned they were organising on Discord servers, which is like a for those who don't know, it's like a cat cat system for gamers, and you can like upload what um, what you're playing at the moment and talk to people, join different people can run independent servers, and Discord's been u- used by a lot of political groups, not just like um, and discussion groups, not just far right groups, but all different kinds to for like more general political organising, much like Twitch has started off as a gaming service and is now used for like kind of general streaming. Um, so what else kind of, how else did they communicate? What else did they use kind of? So they used several different things. They used um, a thing called uh, the a Riot, Riot app, which is a kind of messaging service, uh, which was eventually hacked and several members were doxxed, um, which means their, their public information was, uh, sorry, information about them was shared publicly, uh, real names. They used, then they went to Matrix, um, which is a uh, another encrypted distributed messaging app. And they went to The Wire, just where they um, still use. So the wire, basically all of these are variously kind of secure um, distributed apps that um, don't allow even the owner of the service to track um, the messaging that is going on between various people. So it's a kind of extremely secure uh, yeah, messaging app. One of the kind of strange things that they were often called out on by other um, 
people on the far right is how publicly conspicuous they were. So they spent a lot of time on Gab, their um, profile on Gab. Uh, Gab is a kind of a, um, like a far right version of Twitter. Yeah. Um, their profile on Gab has since been deleted, but they were actually on it, they were using it a lot. Um, and they were very public about what they were trying to do. They were very public that they were trying to organize. And it was this that made other people on the far right think that they were connected, they were the feds, they were the cops, right? Um, four people, I think it was. No, maybe not four people. Several people have um, in, I guess, like interviews. I don't know how the data was collected, but it's referred to in the Guardian piece as well. Several people have given the fact they believed Ronaldo Nazaro was a uh, cop and that's why they left the base. So there is there are, there are quite a lot of suspicion. Of course, there's always suspicion on the far right amongst these groups. And one of the best ways of taking down a rival group is to say that they're cops, right? So it's not obviously you know true. But one of the best when one of the, the most common accusations against them was that they are um, police. Uh, they've also been on Fascist Forge, which is basically kind of a, a, a forum that is in some sense replaced Iron March, which was um, uh, fell apart. Um, as all the information is available online if you're interested in reading that. I don't recommend it, it's very boring. They were also um, involved in accumulating a kind of huge repository of training manuals um, and uh, things like you know, lone wolf terror tactics, gunsmithing, data mining, etc., um, chemical weapon manufacturing, and so on and so on. Uh, also, there were um, Nazaro shared images of how you could build uh, modifications to your car such that you could lie in the back of it with a sniper rifle and shoot people out of the boot. Oh, like um, the DT sniper. Precisely, kind of entirely un undetected. Um, so th th there's a lot of like fascist, uh, sorry, there's a lot of extremely violent content they were posting on social media. One of the websites that's been particularly central to this is a website called iFunny, which is also um, Russian owned, although I'm not kind of a Russia gate. Like, uh, you better like not be, otherwise, we're going to end yeah, the podcast yeah. right yeah. now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, I'm not that kind of invested in that stuff, but the. Um, iFunny is also this website that, where people were posting um, one of the members uh, who was arrested. So, because to be clear, yeah. iFunny is like a relatively mainstream meme yeah. joke website, yeah. like in the in the vein of Reddit, something like that, or like Imager. Really, it's 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 about as popular. It's like number fifty five or something in the App Store. Okay, it's it's not a uh, a niche product. Product. It's a it's a mainstream website. Has lots of completely fine content on it, as does Discord. Like I use Discord to chat with like you know, um, my friends. But it's not like your fascist friends. My fascist friends, my my kind of hipster friends, like yeah. you know, all the well, the same thing. Same thing. Um, all the friends in between. So the um, so I, I iFunny is, is a legitimate website, but one of the when people who was arrested, their account on iFunny posted two things that are really quite significant. One is they posted a video of a barn that they had set on set on fire which is connected to an arson attack in Sweden so we, I said earlier we were going to talk about the kind of global reach of the base this is one of the places where they've uh, been kind of had notable global reach um, one of the members who was connected to the group has posted this video that was of a, um, a barn on fire where the Swedish police had no leads and they also posted another video which was a kind of a one minute gif basically of um, accelerated uh, instructions for how to make a chemical bomb. So these are people who are uh, combining elements of 
the kind of the homemade DIY terrorism and this coalitional network structure, basically in order to share resources online in order to do more effective terrorist attacks. I think what's significant about this kind of stuff as well is that um, for a long time we kind of dealt with groups that oh, in the existing far right they had limits to their what they were going to do or what they were willing to like perpetrate. So for example the BMP um, probably perfectly happy to get into a street fight with fists. Um, uh, we're perfectly happy to run in elections, obviously, and, and, and go on TV and, and canvas and organise in communities and things, which is like a very kind of, you know, they're still racist and they're still fascist, but they're organising within like the politically acceptable kind of mainstream of activity, political activity. Uh, whereas with these people and indeed with National Action and their splinter groups, there seems to be like literally no limit about what is and isn't acceptable, which is, I'm, I'm not going to say scary because they're they're fascists, they're Nazis, like they're not good people. Um, but it is like kind of a, kind of I guess a step up from what anti-fascists have been used to dealing with. At least I guess in the UK in the last kind of period since Combat 18 collapsed, for example. Yeah, we are seeing like a kind of upsurge in these like globally, but also in the UK of like far-right terror in a kind of very literal sense and not in an overblown sense. So I would say that there is a, an important periodization, sorry, an important um, distinction here that we can make um, between conservatism, reaction, fascism, and um, what I would call kind of black-pilled or accelerationist neo-Nazism. Can you just say what you mean, just explicitly what you mean by accelerationist? So accelerationist is, uh, is a term that's used for lots of different things. Um, it was used uh, to describe um, the work of Alex Williams and Nick Sermacek, who are not neo-Nazis. Uh, it's like kind of ordinary socialist kind of people. Yeah, they're kind of, they're, they're kind of socialists um, who have like an interest in uh, harnessing the technology to enhance the uh, appeal and also the kind of reach of socialism as an idea. So accelerationist refers to that group. Accelerationist, accelerationists also refers to uh, a kind of intellectual community online who are also associated sometimes with the far right. Um, people like, um, say, Nick Land, and more kind of inaccurately, sometimes people like Mencius Mulberg, who's wrote a collection of excruciatingly boring, long blog posts um, about politics, is often associated with accelerationism. I think, it's a, it's a, I think that actually that's quite inaccurate. But it's essentially a kind of a, an idea that capitalism has to be pushed forward in order to break. That is not what is intended by these accelerationist neo-Nazis. They're not interested in accelerating the contradictions of capitalism. They're not interested in uh, the expansion of technology. They're interested in race war. And they're interested in violence. And they're interested in uh, an immense amount of destruction. I think the reason why accelerationism is being used here is because it's being kind of misapplied. Okay. I think it's actually really unhelpful term. I don't think it helps. I think blackpilled is actually a much better term. Although, as we've talked about before, I think it has a kind of a, a bad dimension in there. It seems to glamorize or eroticize or kind of make dangerous seeming this ideology. Dangerous, I mean, it is dangerous, but it's dangerous in a very boring way. Well, the thing with the black pill term, and I've kind of gone back and forth on whether to use it, because these people are all nihilists, ultimately. Um, okay, you're making a face. These people... <laughs> but that's, well, that's what black pill referred to, is like like an, a nihilism, a hopelessness about the world, and uh, kind of 
suicidal feelings mixed in with desire for apocalypse and all this kind of stuff. Um, so maybe black pill isn't isn't the right term for what these people do who have a clear project. But there is a certain nihilism to their activity and their their kind of way of doing things. Um, there's also the problem of whether you using the terms that they've used used for themselves or that they've come up with themselves, whether that has like a useful categorization for people who are analyzing or opposing that kind of thing is is an interesting debate to have. And I think we should be careful about the language we use when we're referring to these people, because it's very easy to, at least for people who are like reading a lot of this stuff like we are, it's kind of easy to kind of slip into that at least style of speaking, which is significant, I think. Yeah, I think I think it really is. I, my I, I, my kind of personal bugbear here, my personal kind of thing I get really annoyed at in, in reporting on the far right is the presentation of online far right activity as in some way inexplicable, strange, bizarre, enormous unwieldy, vast, and yet impenetrable. It's none of those things. It's actually really quite banal. If you have a teenage child, um, they will probably use Discord. If you have a, um, like, you know, people use these things, and the way they use them is not different from the way in which neo-Nazis use them. The content is actually quite similar. People use encrypted messaging apps all the time. WhatsApp is a kind of traditional encrypted messaging app. It's not as secure as other ones, but it's, it's kind of encrypted. You know, these are not strange and not inexplicable parts of it. So I, I definitely agree there's like a, a difficulty in kind of not only falling into the trap that the far right have laid for you in terms of glamorizing their own activities, but also falling into the trap of making, making exotic or strange or interesting their activities in the same way that the majority of journalistic writing about them does. You mentioned that the acceleration that's, that's often referred to um, by the mainstream press, mainstream analysis, is kind of in, an interest in race war or an escalating race war. And this, um, I guess to a lot of our listeners, this could seem kind of out the blue um, or like a kind of like quite a shocking kind of thing to be interested in at all. But um, even for out-and-out -out Nazis, fascists, you've always kind of, at least in the UK, we've kind of associated them for a long time with like, a party that's um, kind of wanting to progress an agenda, wants to speak for white people or be the main advocate for white people, which is obviously awful, racist and problematic, um, deeply problematic. But the, the kind of the concept of a race war or the practice or the desire for a kind of almost apocalyptic kind of reshaping of society has got quite a long history uh, in the kind of post-World War II era. Um, I wondered if you could speak to that, maybe. Yes, I think there are, there, are, there are several moments there that are really crucial. One of them is, is the collapse of the Nazi, American Nazi Party, um, which goes away. And um, I think in some ways that was an attempt, maybe I'm not entirely sure about this, I think in some ways that was an attempt to apply a kind of European model of party organisation to the American context. didn't go very well. We also had a similar thing in the, in the UK with um, the, the precursor of the National Front, which John Tyndall was involved in, yeah. um, which organised in kind of a paramilitary fashion, had these training camps, had these kind of military-style uniforms, and also, and but in that kind of way, that was kind of marginalised by the existing far-right kind of milieu at the time, um, and obviously they made a decision to revert 
into a kind of electoral coalition. Um, so yeah, we've had these we've had these kind of journeys away from anyway. Continue. I think that the um, and so what what, what replaces or what comes kind of after at least chronologically the American Nazi Party is people like William Luther Pierce, who wrote a thing called the Turner Diaries. He released it in 1979 under the pen name Andrew MacDonald. And um, the Turner Diaries were, I guess, the, well, to state it plainly, it's a kind of racist thriller uh, written in diary format um, that basically describes a kind of escalating terror campaign waged by a group called The Organisation, uh, which results in uh, kind of a, literally results in global race war, nuclear Armageddon, um, and the kind of possibility of a, and the the building of a white ethno state. Um, but it's, it's interesting to note, even in the terms of race, which you think would have this ending of kind of sunny uplands and you know uh, finally white people all together, etc., etc., actually ends with the weaker white people having to be eaten for food. Um, it's not a positive in any way. Like it's not. It's not in any way kind of a, um, a hopeful image. And the, the reason why I said the thing earlier about there kind of being this ambiguity about whether or not people on the extreme right or the kind of black field right are really aiming at anything beyond violence, or if they're just aiming at the violence, I think is really kind of shown up in this, this Turner Diaries problem, where there is no positive image that comes at the end of the book. Nothing comes of their violence, but further violence. Well, maybe this is what I meant by the nihilism thing. Totally, yeah. And the, the, thing, the thing about the Turner Diaries as well is it's, it's, it's an interesting example of conspiracy, but it's also like had such a huge influence on what, on what came after it, for what it was. And it is, it is kind of surprising that a book written in the late 1970s didn't get a publication deal um, from ever any major publisher, for obvious reasons. Um, it's had such a cultural impact. But in fact, you know, I guess the 80s were a different time and the 90s were a different time. Like the... Turner Diaries was, was actually ran in Barnes & Noble, which is like kind of America's uh, version of Waterstones, um, for a brief period, but still like a significant period of a few years. It was sold in, um, in Barnes & Noble and became like a, a, a kind of, you know, was, was, was sold on that mainstream platform. And so it's unsurprising that a lot of people managed to get their hands on it because it was sold in such a, such a mainstream way. Currently, of course, the Turner Diaries is sold on Amazon. Um, Yes, and if you if you look at the if you look at the Turner Diaries page on Amazon, which I don't recommend you do, and you scroll down to look at customers also bought, you have a huge collection of Atomwaffen style skull masks. Yes, and also I mean, it's, it's, like who, who is this book aimed at? Who is actually buying this book? It's exclusively people on the far right. After the Turner Diaries comes Siege, um, which was written by a guy called James Mason. So James Mason was part. Uh, was involved in the uh, the core clandestine violent group that was behind um, the wider National Socialist Liberation Front, allegedly. He wrote this magazine called, or newsletter called Siege, which um, expounded and, and kind of followed on from the Turner Diaries in its kind of advocacy for race war, extreme anti-Semitism, extreme racism, ex you know, against people of colour and various different kind of minorities in society. Um, and the interesting thing about Sieg and James Mason was he, he was writing in the 80s and he was releasing in the 80s and he kind of went quiet for like 30 years almost, like 20 years. And then um, I, Iron March forum members, neo-Nazis neo today, kind of millennial neo-Nazis today, um, went and found him 
found James Mason who was living somewhere in obscurity and got him to start kind of publishing and writing again, or at least wanted him to. Um, and so this is really interesting. You never really think about kind of Nazis having this kind of like appreciation for the, histo the historical legacy of their ideas and their beliefs. Um, but of course they do, because like everyone who's like a political ideologue would have that kind of knowledge and have that kind of appreciation of history, at least uh, anyway. Um, and so this is here is an example of like kind of a modern Nazi kind of neo-Nazi uh, network or milieu going back and kind of excavating things from the back and resurrecting things from the past and bringing it back, which is of concern because, you know, these groups like the Order, which is based on the Turner Diaries, National Services, Liberation Front, even groups in, from the 90s in the UK like Combat 18, were on you know another level of violence and another level of kind of, you know, the Order was kind of robbing banks and murdered a guy, you know, um, a radio host, uh, a Jewish left-wing radio host. Um, well, at least I think he was left-wing. He was? Yeah, okay. Um, so I, I think that's, that, is of con uh, that is of concern. The other thing I wanted to say is that the base was founded in the same month as Harold Covington dies. And Harold Covington was the leader and main propagandist of, um, of the Northwest Front, uh, which was part of the, one of the main organisations that kind of carried this idea of the Northwest Territorial Imperative, which is the idea that there are these states in the Northwest USA which would secede from the Union and become a white ethno-state in the time following a race war. And if this, this kind of northwest kind of settlement, neo-Nazi settlement thing sounds a bit out, out of the blue, um, you know, Oregon and, and Washington State, and these kind of um, states around the northwest and that area, Pacific Northwest has got a long history of racism, white supremacy that goes way, way back to the founding of Oregon itself. So Oregon was founded as an all-white uh, state um, and as a slavery state. And then slavery was kind of uh, banned because they didn't want to have black people in the state, essentially. So you need, um, if black people were going to stay in Oregon, um, they would face increasing fines and eventually like kind of whippings and things like this. So very hostile uh, state for a long time for um, people of colour. And this is why there is these kind of resettlement, resettlement projects that have kind of cropped up every now and then. Um, there was a recent attempt in the late 2010s as well to, to kind of buy land in this kind of small town in, in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, and um, one of the things that the base has done is also buy about 30 acres of land, mostly in Washington state. So they're in, following on in that tradition? In order to um, not only have the land, but also to organise trading, basically. And um, one of the other things that, uh, in, in a rural environment that is uh, distinctly offline, one of the things that's really kind of interesting, I think, is that there's a real crossover here with American uh, prepper movements and American militia movements. And prepper movements are basically people who believe that there is something that needs to be done to prepare for when um, society collapses, which it inevitably uh, will. The difference between preppers and the base is the base don't only believe that society will inevitably collapse, but also that collapse is desirable. And so there's a kind of a spin on this prepping and a lot of their the things they've been sharing online, a lot of the kind of ideas they've been um, yeah, using in places they've been recruiting have also been out of the prepping and militia movements um, in America, which are yeah. strong in the rural areas as well. So I had a question about kind of the, the makeup of the 
membership of the base, like what their backgrounds were. It seems like um, at least they claim that they have a lot of like ex-military veteran types. Um, and whether that's true or not, it's interesting that in their kind of chats and in their kind of log, the chat logs that you can see, they're using a lot of kind of tactical uh, language, I guess, military terms, tactical language. Um, which is interesting because I think they probably do see them model themselves as like a paramilitary. They aspire to kind of paramilitary, uh, to a paramilitary organisation. And so it would be natural that they would fall into these kind of military terminology and they would obsess over it, even if they weren't actually soldiers themselves or if the, uh, kind of the vast majority weren't soldiers. Um, it's it's kind, of, kind of revelling kind of the idea of violence, the idea of kind of mass, um, uh, mass catastrophe. Yeah, so and what, this thing's to one of the which links to one of the best books about fascism, which is Klaus Kerlite's Male Fantasies, which essentially describes, it starts from a collection of diaries um, written by people who came back from uh, the war, who were uh, the paramilitary units that essentially uh, fed into the Nazi party. So the, and he, he says that there is a distinct kind of male space that war brings, and that fascist parties and fascist militias are, to some extent, attempts to recreate this kind of fully male society. And so in these ex-servicemen and current servicemen, joining, uh, coming back from the army, of course the army is nowhere near as macho as it once was, it's nowhere near as male-dominated as it once was, I mean, there are now women in the army, but um, yeah, still not as many as men. And not the most progressive institution in society, you could say. The, the army is not the most progressive institution in society. Um, but nevertheless, there are women, so the thing is kind of different. But yes, you can possibly see these, these groups as not only attempts to create a kind of male space, but the fantasies of accelerationism, the fantasies of mass violence and race war, as ways of attempting to return to something that is missed or felt as kind of lost in martial life, life that is dominated by the military. So I think that's a, that's a probably plausible explanation for the the attraction of this kind of group and the attraction of this kind of idea to people from military backgrounds. And we also see like um, echoes of this kind of this kind of military male kind of um, fantasy world in the militia movement, particularly mm -hmm. in like even in like the the UK with these um, I guess groups like the EDL, the FLA being extremely pro-veteran, very into help the heroes, um, very identified very strongly with like kind of military backgrounds, military families. Um, obviously, EDL was started because of a, a Islamist protest at a kind of a military funeral procession. Um, and a strong identification with that is identification kind of a macho attitude towards war and killing and fighting for your country, fighting for a cause, and I, whatever that cause is. Yeah, and, um, that, and the DFLA, of course, was rooted in football ads, is that what the, the, you know, the FNL in the title mean? And where is the, the most kind of quintessentially masculine space in these people's lives, and indeed in kind of mass culture more generally? It's probably the football stadium. Yeah. And it, even on from that, not just the football stadium, but the hooligan firms in which the FLA were based and the FLA were based um, were even more an extreme example of this kind of male kind of male spaces, um, violence as a, a as an activity, um, as a specifically male activity. Um, uh, defending, fighting for your kind of club is very analogous to um, a lot of these kind of military modes of thinking that these groups display. Um, 
That's really, that's really, that's really crucial. That's all we have time for. Thank you very much for listening to this um, terrifying and I hope interesting episode about the base. If you want to support the show, you can go and support us on Patreon. We now have excellent $5 a month perks. You can get a reading list of all the sources that we've used in this episode, everything we've been reading about the far right. Just a reminder and kind of a, I guess, um, uh, an excited whisper that we are publishing a book this year um, from Dog Section Press. That'll, more information will come out about that soon. Um, do go and follow us on Twitter and uh, subscribe to the podcast wherever you get podcasts. We are um, also uh, members of the Channel Zero Network, which is a collection of anarchist and radical uh, podcasts and radio shows, mainly based in America, but we're like, there's a few. Our friends in Ireland are also a member, and you can listen to a trailer for another sh- episode, another show on that network after we've finished speaking. Go and check them out as well. They've got a fundraiser. Great. That, that trailer, now. This is Anarchist Prisoner Sean Swain with Final Straw Radio Show on the Channel Zero Network. Emma Goldman once said that our liberation lies in our emancipation from authority and from the belief in it. If she were alive today, she'd be binge listening to the Channel Zero Network too. The Channel Zero Network, because every countdown ends at zero. So thank you for listening, and see you soon. Bye-bye. 12 rules.